0: test test one two three sounds like it's working out here we're good thank you brother All right. Good morning, everybody. I have the thumbs up. We are live so uh, we can get started. Thank you for being here today and a little different arrangement with the tables. You're nice and snugly close, kind of like you like each other. Is that good? Right? Uh, So this is a remainder uh, left over from our congregational meeting last night, which was um, downstairs. Uh, It was really good. First time ever we did a Zoom meeting along with our congregational meeting. So we had Uh, 53 people that voted online last night. Isn't that something? How the world has changed, isn't it? Uh, So anyway, um, thanks for being here this morning. We're continuing uh, in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I have the second to last class. So this is this Tuesday. Next Tuesday, Pastor Aaron is going to close us off. Uh, I already told him he's a lucky duck because he gets to talk about the resurrection uh, so next week we get to talk about uh, the beautiful good news. Uh, Jesus is risen from the dead. But today uh, we're going to work through what Mark teaches us about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. So we'll kind of have a chance to talk through the amazing sacrifice and plan of God as we see it in, in Jesus. So look forward to digging into uh, this with you. And uh, you might notice I'm, doing, I'm cheating a little bit. Uh, on this one. Uh, I'm backing up a little bit uh, as we talk through. I'm going to actually look at parts of Mark 14 and into what we're doing today from Mark 15. And you'll see why, I hope, when we get to it, uh, the reason for my, my re- weirdness. And so we'll work through Mark 14 and 15, the story of the cru- trial and crucifixion of Jesus today. So super glad that you're here. Um, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into the word. Well, dear Lord, Heavenly Father, God, good morning, Lord. Thank you for this day you've given us, for the opportunity to be together again and uh, just to be in your word. I can't think of anything better to spend our day doing than this. So thank you, Jesus, for your presence and, and for giving us the word. And today, especially, we thank you as the word teaches us about the ultimate event in human history. when. When Jesus, you laid down your life for us on the cross and fulfilled God's plan, spoken already in Genesis, to redeem and restore what was broken and lost. and So as we try and wrap our minds around this great sacrifice, the crucifixion, when you bore our sins, uh, help us just, um, again, be awed uh, by the ultimate example of love and uh, be awed in knowing that that ultimate example of love was for each and every one of us. So we are so grateful and thankful and look forward to learning and growing about what you've done for us in Jesus this morning. Pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends. So if you're looking at your sheets, right, here here is the Dan logic of the day. You ready? So I was just at the PAC this week, and uh, you you all go there, right, for great shows and stuff. I, I saw Hamilton. You are correct, because a dear friend of mine scored me some tickets. Uh, So, um, you know, when they go, they always give you the little booklet, the handout ahead of time. And if you read that book, you know, it lists all the principal players, who they were, how they were involved in the drama, right? And doesn't that help you just understand the show and appreciate the show and get ready for the show and know what's coming? Sometimes when I go to a musical or something that I don't know a lot about, I'll like to read up ahead of it a little bit. I'll get online and just read up a little bit so I know the story. Because sometimes when you're at these musicals, you're like, what in the heck? Who is she? What is he doing? Why did that happen? And, you know, you're like, what? You know, because you don't always hear the music. You don't always hear the words. Or is that just me? All right. Good. Good. I'm glad. Thank you. So the point is, if you know the players and if you know the story, if you know how folks are involved, it makes the whole thing make more sense, doesn't it? So this is my mind as I'm thinking about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. It helps to know the principal players. It helps to know the setting of the drama that's taking place so that we can appreciate really what's happening in the drama that we're, that we're looking at. So this morning, I'm reading my second sentence. As we look at the greatest drama of all time, I'd like to focus on the five principal players in the Passion the suffering and dying of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it's told to us by Mark. So everyone had a part to play in this drama, and when we understand the players, we'll get a better understanding of the scope of God's plan, of who and how he uses people to accomplish his purpose, and how it all points and leads to the horrific and yet beautiful conclusion of the death of the Son of God. Or is it the conclusion? (laughs) You all know Mark doesn't end in chapter 15. Thank God there's another chapter, 16, which is the real conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today, though, we're just going to talk about the drama that leads to chapter 16, the death death of Jesus. So first of all, did you know this? If you're looking at your sheets, we're talking about the drama. We're setting the stage. We're looking at the principal players. Did you know that Jesus' trial before he was crucified, actually took place in two stages, and each of those stages had three parts, right? Were you aware of this? Have you ever seen it laid out like this before? So if you're reading the Bible about the trial of Jesus, you see there were two trials. There was the Jewish trial with the religious leaders, and then there was also the Roman trial, which was Pontius Pilate, and each of those two trials had three pieces, And so I printed that for you, right? The Jewish trial began with a preliminary hearing before Annas, who was the former high priest. All right? So the trial begins with Jesus in the middle of the night before Annas. And it's interesting, isn't it, that that Annas, even though he wasn't the current high priest, that they first brought Jesus to him, which shows who really had the power. You know what I'm saying? Even though he wasn't in power, he still carried the power. You know, so they bring him to Annas first, and this is reported to us in John chapter 18. Then the second part is, after he sees Annas, they bring him to Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the moment. Now, the interesting thing about Caiaphas, if you didn't know this, Caiaphas became the high priest, Because he married Annas's daughter. Ah, you see how this works? Right? It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. (laughs) Right? So Caiaphas marries the high priest Annas with great clout and authority, his daughter, so that he can become the high priest. But who do you think really was functioning as the high priest? Daddy Daddy was. You got it. Daddy was Annas, and so first, if he sees Annas, then we know he goes to see Caiaphas, and not just Caiaphas, but the entire Sanhedrin. Now, you know what the Sanhedrin is. We'll look at this in a little bit. The Sanhedrin was composed of seventy-one people that were elected by the officials. It was the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Scribes and the Elders. It was like the ruling company of the Jewish folks. So I always say the Sanhedrin is like our United States Congress, right? You follow me? It was the rulers, the leaders, the elected officials of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish system. So the second part of that trial comes before Caiaphas, who was the uh, speaker of the house, or the, the ruler of the Sanhedrin. And then the third part was this final action of the Sanhedrin, which terminated this all-night session. So there are these three pieces, then, that happened in the Jewish trial. There are those who argue there was actually a fourth piece to the Jewish trial. If you remember in John chapter 11, after uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, you know, it is an amazing thing. And all the people who saw it are completely in awe. I mean, wouldn't you? Someone who was dead and buried for four days comes stumbling out with the grave clothes all wrapped on him. And he's alive and well and talking again. And remember, people began to flock to Jesus because of this great miracle. And you remember what happens right after? There is a meeting of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And they say, what is this man doing? If we don't do something about him, he is going to kill the Jewish nation." And it's, well, let's just look it up. I, I'm, I'm not doing it justice. Turn to John chapter 11. I need to just let the word speak and stop speaking for it. John chapter 11, verse 45. I think this is amazing. This is long before, the, long before the, this happens in the trial on the last night. John chapter 11, beginning verse 45. Right after the raising of Lazarus, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But, uh, there always has to be a but, doesn't there? But, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And they said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Everybody go like this. (laughs) Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. So there are those who argue that was the first trial, even though it was long before the actual trial that happens itself. Now, I just want to make sure you didn't miss the irony here. Caiaphas has this prophecy that one man will die for the nation to unite them all together as one. He was right, but so wrong at the same time. Because what was he thinking? He was thinking that Jesus would die because he was evil, and then that would unite the people together as one. He had that totally flipped upside down. Jesus would die for the evil, and that would unite everybody as one, right? But still, crazy talk. Uh, so this probably is the first trial here in John chapter 11. So maybe there were four parts to that, but that doesn't have such nice symmetry as two parts with three and three. There you go, and it's all about symmetry. All right, so we have the Jewish trial. So this night, this all happens right after Jesus is arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. This is after that long night in the upper room on, on Monday, Thursday, the washing of the disciples' feet, the giving of the Lord's Supper, the prediction of uh, Judas's betrayal, the prediction of, of Peter's denial, the prediction that all the disciples will run, and his prayers in the garden, sweating great drops of sweat, right? After all of that begins these trials. All right, so that's the Jewish section. Then we let's look at the Roman trial. Another part of the day of Good Friday uh, is uh, begins with the trial before Pilate in Mark chapter 15. We'll look at that. Then he goes before Herod Antipas. So Herod sends, or excuse me, uh, Pilate sends him from the court to Herod Antipas to his court, and then he comes back again for the trial as it continues and concludes. Uh, in mark fifteen six through fifteen fifteen verse six through fifteen, all right, so this is all the scene that's happening here as we're talking about the drama of Jesus' death and um, crucifixion. So thoughts before I move on to the next section. Anybody had you ever seen it laid out like that? Two parts with three and three or two parts with four and three, depending on how you count? ooh, that would be seven. that would work too. Oh yeah. All good? good? All right. Well, let's look then at these, at these uh, five principal players. So I'm thinking about the whole drama that leads to the crucifixion. We'll talk about the Sanhedrin first, right? Then we'll get to the governor, Pontius Pilate. Then we'll talk about the crowd that's gathered there at the cross. Then we'll talk about God because he is certainly a principal player in all of this. And then we'll end with the fifth final, the faithful women who were there at the cross and buried Jesus' body. So begin with the Sanhedrin. Mark chapter 14, if you want to turn there. And I'm going to read verses 55 to 65. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any shock. I added that shock word. Many testified falsely about him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Ego Ami, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, Daniel chapter 7. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. That's the text. Yai the Sanhedrin. the 71 members of the Sanhedrin constituted the Jewish Supreme Court responsible for the final oversight of the religious life of the people. Now, in a night session, contrary to the, their own rules, they had a rule. It was illegal to have a, a, a trial at night. Why is it illegal to have a trial at night? Trials were meant to be in the open, public. Right, no hidden trials where you can, you know, sneakily, you know, do what you need or get the verdict that you want out of the public eye. There was a rule, a law they had: there shall be no nighttime trials. And yet they break their own law in order to put Jesus in uh, under trial. Um, So they place him on trial. First, now question one: How did Mark speak of their prejudice already as they approached the trial? Did you see verse 55? The chief priests and all the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. This was not going to be a fair trial, was it? No. <laughs> could there any possibly way be a fair trial with that kind of word, that kind of a sentence? They were looking for evidence that they might put him to death. They already had their minds made up about him, didn't they? This wasn't really a trial. You know, there was no justice here. No one wanted to hear the other side of the story. No one wanted to hear a defense of Jesus. All they wanted was testimony against him so they would have a reason to get rid of him. Can you hear their bias? It just drips from this sentence. They were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. And they were ready to take any action to do so, weren't they? I have a quote from uh, one of my commentators that I thought was interesting. It said, it was not really Jesus who was on trial before the religious institution. It was the institution which was on trial before him. That's always true, when an authority, which is inherent and genuine, confronts those who are self-constituted judges. See, isn't that interesting? Really, who's on trial here is not Jesus, but it is those who were putting him under trial and violating the rules and violating the concept of fairness and justice. By their own actions, they condemned themselves, didn't they? Right by their own actions, they put themselves under trial, and found themselves to be guilty. Well, we find them to be guilty because of their actions. Right. So, so often when good is under trial, it is evil that is exposed, not good. Makes sense, right? Right. So, moving on. Question two: Why did these false witnesses focus on Jesus' words about destroying the temple? Isn't it interesting? They couldn't find any false testimony. So they settle on this false testimony. That Jesus claimed that he would destroy the temple. Go ahead, Darius. That's what Jesus meant. Jesus meant the temple was his body. But listen closely what they said. They totally misquote Jesus. They say, I will destroy this man-made temple. This is verse 57, by the way. They say, we heard him say, he will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Is that what Jesus said? I want you to turn to John chapter 2. Let's look exactly what John said, what Jesus said in John. John chapter 2, verse 19. So they asked for a miraculous sign in John. And what does Jesus say to them? He gives the ultimate miracle, although this went right over their heads. John, 9, John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. There it is. Jesus was clearly talking about his body would be destroyed and in three days be raised again. Does that sound like anything you might know? Right? What's he talking about? He's talking about his death and his resurrection, isn't he? Right? Jesus knows what's coming. If you ever think that Jesus was caught unaware by the crucifixion, if you ever thought that Jesus didn't understand what he was here to do and accomplish, if you ever thought that Jesus didn't know that after he was dead and buried and carried the sins of the world that he would rise again on Easter to defeat death once and for all so that St. Paul could say death has been swallowed up in victory, then you are sadly mistaken. He knew full well, didn't he? He's talking about his body. But now, back to Mark. When they're trying to drum up some false testimony against him, they don't care about Jesus' body and his death and his resurrection. If they're going to try and find a reason to get rid of this guy, to kill Jesus, all we need to do is get him to attack our religious institution. Attack our power base attack our authority and our position. And if you attack the temple, you're attacking all of that. Do you see? It's not really the temple that Jesus, that they're angry about. The temple represents the Jewish religious system. The temple represents their places of authority and honor and power as scribes and Pharisees and their elected position on the Sanhedrin. Do you see? Man, if you attack the temple, you're going right for the juggler. You know, for me, it's like uh, when 9 11 happened, what did the terrorists target? You know, they were going for the White House. If it wasn't for the, the brave men and women on flight 93, right, that, that they believed that was going straight for the White House. They hit the Pentagon and they hit the World Trade Center. See, these symbols, it really wasn't about the building, was it? If they were gonna really hurt America, if they were gonna really attack our system, what were they gonna get at? The symbols of our system. And that's what's going on here. When you attack the temple, man, when you you, uh, blaspheme the temple, you're, you're going right for their system of power and authority. You get it? So this is the accusation that they finally settle on. He said he would destroy the temple, i.e., destroy our system of religion and power. Get it? Ouch. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting that that's in the Greek is the aorist tense of the word for destroy. It's a command. Jesus says, "Destroy this temple." <laughs> like he commands them to do it. It's not an accident. He's not a victim. He's in control. Kind of cool. All right, so this, now you know why this whole deal about why the temple mattered so much, right? So number three, in this thing, how was Jesus finally put into a position in which they could judge him as being guilty? Because even when they gave the, the testimony about the temple, it's interesting, Mark says, even that they could not agree on. There's still that wasn't even that wasn't enough because they couldn't agree on what how they were going to treat that. So, what was the final straw that broke the Sanhedrin's back? What does the high priest do in verse 61? Yeah, he puts Jesus under oath and he asks him, Are you the Christ? Now, let's stop, everybody. You know, I do this every time we have that word Christ, don't I? What does the word Christ mean? Right? The Christ is not Jesus' last name. Isn't this what I always say? Jesus is not the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. And that's why his name is Jesus Christ. That's not, Christ is not a name. It's a title. So what does Christ mean? Anointed one, promised one, Messiah. Messiah. The one who would set things right, God Himself, who has come to redeem and restore what was lost. So notice when when he when he says, "Are you the Christ?" Isn't that cool that it says that there, the Christ? That's the way we should always say it, the Christ. Are you the one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you God who has come to come to uh, set things right, to redeem and restore again? And then he even takes it another notch. Are you the Christ, also who we know is going to be the son of the Blessed One? Who's the Blessed One? Caesar? Pontius Pilate? No, Blessed One was the name of God that they couldn't pronounce. It was Yahweh. It was the Old Testament Elohim, God, the, the God of the Old Testament, whose name was so holy and sacred they would not pronounce it. So instead they substituted with words like, Adonai, which means Lord, or blessed one, which is another just another name for God. So do you see what he does? He puts Jesus under oath and says, are you the Christ? Do you really think that you're God in the flesh, son of the blessed one? He's got him right now, right? He's got him because either he denies it, and if he denies it, then all the people will go away. All their problems will go away. And he's not God, and he's not all that. He's not doing miracles. He's just another guy. But if he said yes, then they got him for blasphemy. You know what blasphemy is, right? Claiming to be God. So he's got him in a perfect, perfect place. And for the first time, Jesus comes out and says, what did he say here? He says, I am. Now, again, I hope you know the power of these words. He says, are you the Christ? Are you the God, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus, this time, doesn't do what he did so often. He just sort of kind of doesn't answer. He says, well, let the miracles see. Let the miracles teach. If you don't believe the miracles, believe the teachings. Or now that you've seen, don't tell anybody. Not this time. Because now the time has come. Now he says, I am. And notice, again, you heard me say when I read it, the Greek words for this are ego, a Now, you know, a all by itself means I am. And ego is the pronoun I. So what Jesus really says here, when you put, I mean, that's bad grammar. You don't need a, a pronoun I in front of the Greek word I am. You don't say, I, I am. That just sounds goofy, doesn't it? But Jesus says, I, I am. In other words, when he did that, he made an emphatic statement saying, like, the best way to translate ego eimi is this, I, I only am. That's the best translation, literal translation of ego eimi. I, I only am. It's a statement of Godness. You remember the name of God in Exodus chapter 3? Moses is at the burning bush. And he says, man, I'll I'll do whatever you ask me. But if they say who's sending me, what's your name? What, What should I call you? What should I say who's sending me? And you all remember Charlton Heston at the burning bush, right? What do you hear? I am who I am. Tell them I am is sending you. What's the name of God? I am. Four little letters in the Hebrew, the tetragrammaton, which you sound them out, either make the sound of Yahweh or uh, El, no, not Elohim, Yahweh, or it's Yahweh, but Jehovah. Others will, depending on how you point it, it can be Yehovah. Some folks say Jehovah is the real name, not Yahweh, but anyway. I am who I am. So what does Jesus do? Do you think the High Priest in the Sanhedrin knows the name of God is Yahweh? Of course they do. They won't even pronounce it if it's so sacred and holy. They said, High Priest says, "Are you the one? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus uses the name of God for himself?" says, "Yes, I am who I am. I only am, and what does that do to the High Priest? He loses his mind, yeah he just blows up. He's like, what? I can't believe you just said that. He tears his clothes, verse 62, and he says, why do we need any more witnesses? Let's not be arguing about he said this, or he said that, or he's destroying the temple. Or he's not de- We don't need another word. You have heard the blasphemy. Now, what are we going to do with it? Let's kill him, they said. Our- Yes. Yes, they could not. Correct. They had no authority to execute the judgment. All they had was the authority to pronounce the judgment. So now they have to go run into pilot, which drove them crazy. All right, so the first player in this is the Sanogen. A bunch of in I'm not saying any words. Oh, and by the way, not only that does he say, "I am," but I should have said this too: and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming down in the clouds of heaven. That's a direct quote from Daniel chapter seven. It's a prophecy that when Messiah comes, that he will descend from heaven on the clouds and sit in the Read it sometime. It's again, it was one of their favorite prophecies of the waiting of the coming of the Messiah. <laughs> so. Jesus just claims he is, and then rubs a little prophecy in his face on top of it. Is it any wonder he lost his mind? Go ahead, Arlo. No. No, they weren't allowed to do that either. Yeah, they did it, but they weren't allowed to do it. Yeah, yeah, they They were not allowed to even stone people. All right, so, like, think about this. When St. Paul stoned Stephen, remember this? He was Saul at that point. He had a letter of, um, he carried letters with him of authority to enable him to do that from the Roman government. Right? So that's why he was able to officially do it. But there were also stonings that just happened unofficially, you know, as well. Alright, so I'm reading on the next. P- Governor Pontius Pilate is the next big player. So if you want to turn to chapter 15. Man, where does the time go? Verses 1 through 15. Mark 15, 1 to 15. Very early in the morning. Remember, this is the third piece of the three trials with the Jewish leaders. Right, so it's all night, the trial went on. Now, very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. <laughs> yeah. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king excuse me, Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Now, here, he doesn't say, egg away me, does he? Because that would mean nothing to Pilate. and need would be meaningless gibber jabber to him. He doesn't know the name of God. He doesn't know the prophecies. So instead, Jesus uses an idiom here. Yes, it is as you say. Um, some translations, NIV actually does a good job here. Like the old King uh, James Version, I believe, said, you sayeth so. Or uh, the RSV says, yes, so you say No, not yes, it just says, so you say. The point is that the NIV does a good job with the yes comma, it is as you say. Because not only does Jesus just answer, yeah, you say I am, but he says, yes, it is as you say. So you see there's a double agreement here. Jesus agrees with it, and he says, it is also what you've heard. Yes, it is as you say. Verse 3, the chief priests accused them of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison. Don't you know, I just have, (laughs) I'm sorry. Sometimes things just pop in my head, and I have to say it. My head will explode. You know, people love to name people, you know, their children after biblical names. There's Mary's and John's and Paul's all over the world. But you don't ever hear any Barabbas's, do you? Do you ever hear any? You don't hear many Judas's either, right? You don't hear many Barabbas's. All right. I don't know. See, it just pops in my head and then I have to get it out. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Well, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. These players in the drama are not really good people, are they? Pilate had a history of difficulties in carrying out his political assignments. You all know that being... Um, given the post of, of the ruler of Judea was not a plum posting. This would be like an ambassador who's sent to Siberia, you know? So because he's here in Judea is an example that he's not high in the list of Caesar's most favored governors. He's on the bottom rung and he's an inch away from losing his position. So you see, it's a very precarious moment in a precarious time for Pontius Pilate. Do you see? He was basically, as I wrote, on trial by Rome in being named prefect of the Roman province of Judea. And he had made some serious mistakes there already. It was already made opportunity for the Jewish leaders with influential friends in Rome to pressure Pilate to do his will. Huh. So you've got this pressure, political pressure cooker that's going on right now. There's incredible tension between the Jewish leaders and with Pilate and tension between Pilate and his authorities in Rome. So, well, first I need to ask this. Why did Pilate have to be involved in their verdict against Jesus? We already have said that, right? Because the Sanhedrin couldn't yeah. kill him. So they had to bring Jesus to Pilate. Do you see? So what then was the charge? This is, I think, fascinating. You think the Sanhedrin aren't plotting and, and wise and how things work? <laughs> what charge did they bring against Jesus in Pilate's court? Did they come up to Pilate in court and say, you should have heard what he said. He said he would destroy the temple and in three days he would build it up again. Pilate, you got to kill this guy. If he had done that, what would Pilate have said? What? I don't give a rip about your religious arguments. I don't care about your temple, and destroying your temple and a claim that you're going to build it up again in three days? Don't bother me with this garbage. So that's not the accusation they bring. What do they say instead? This man claims to be king of the Jews. Right there. As soon as you say the word king, Pilate is all in. Right now, it becomes a political matter. Right now, it becomes a matter against Rome, because everybody knows there's one king, there's one Caesar. And anyone who claims to be a king is no friend of Caesar. you heard that before, right? So now, now they have Pilate's attention. Now Pilate is fully engaged in the conversation, because they have turned it into a political matter, not a religious matter. See the genius of the Sanhedrin? Yes. He is. Absolutely. You are so right. And do you know who knows this better than anyone? The Sanhedrin. And they are just playing it like crazy, right? When they say, we have no king but Caesar, anyone who is, a, you know, is a, supporting this king is not a friend. of. They're just twisting the knife in Caesar's heart. If you ever want to read a really good explanation of everything that led up to this, a historical document of there was a, a thing that happened in the temple with the shields. There's a thing that happened in the temple with the people that were murdered in the court that was only for for the the, uh, religious, uh, the Jewish people, right? You need to read this book by Dr. Paul Meyer called In the Fullness of Time. It's in our church library. I know this as a fact, right? In the fullness of time. And he just explains all the things politically that happened to Pilate in Jerusalem that led up to his being so malleable. That the Jews could the Sanhedrin could manipulate him into killing who he knew was an innocent man. All the reasons for that are laid out really well in this book in the fullness of time. March? I always wondered why Pilate had him flogged crucifixion or not. Why was why did Pilate have him flogged and beaten? It could have been the prophecies because Pilate wouldn't have known that. He didn't know the prophecies. He didn't do that to fulfill a prophecy. What most people are saying is that this was Pilate's way of trying to avoid the crucifixion. Remember, he beats the tar out of him. He's all bloodied and looks like a, weak, a weakling. And he presents him in front of the people. And you remember what he says? Here's your king. Take a look at this pathetic, bloody, and beaten weakling. This is your king? It's like he's trying to say, just let him go. He's nothing. Just let him go. You don't have to kill him. But in the same sense where it talks about over to Yes. Oh, that time again. Yeah, that's another time. See, he was beaten several times. (laughs) He beats him one last time before he sends him off to the crucifixion. That was just cruel. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yep. That's why they only did 39, right? Sure. Go ahead. Because that is, again, that's a direct prophecy from Daniel. In Daniel, the Messiah is called the Son of Man. Again, and they all knew this. That they all knew that the, that phrase, Son of Man, was a messianic title that went all the way back to Daniel's prophecies. Well, I'm not sure they would have known that. She said that he would be born of a human. It was more just the, the prophecy than it was, well, I don't know. Maybe you're right. I'll have to think about that one. Do you know how much did they understand what Son of Man meant? That I'm not sure. I'll have to think on that one. But what I do know is they knew it was a Messianic prophecy that came from one of their great prophets, Daniel. Yep, for sure. Yep. All right, so can you see the Sanhedrin working pilot? This is where I was trying to go with this. Uh, so I'm reading um, my paragraph. Uh, when bullied into ordering Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate had the public notice of the charge. Wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm up above you, right? Um, and my question six now. Why did Pilate try to release Jesus? To what length did he go on this? He knew he was innocent. He, it said right there, didn't it? They, they knew that the only reason it was there is that the religious leaders were envious of Jesus. So he knew he was innocent. And to what length did he go to, to, to uh, release Jesus? They, he was even willing to release Barabbas. Barabbas was hated by both the Jews and the Romans. See, this is Pilate. You know, you, you, you could say, well, that, that's a trade that they're going to want to make in a heartbeat. They get one of their own back. Barabbas was Jewish. They'll trade that in a heartbeat. But they hated Barabbas. The Jews did, because he was a radical zealot who was continually stirring up trouble for them and causing them so much grief and heartache. They were punished over and over again because of the actions of Barabbas and the other radical zealots like him. (laughs) So, you know, Pilate's got this strategy, you know, I'll know what I'll do. I'll I'll put up someone they hate. So they'll certainly not want to release him. They'll let Jesus go instead. And again, how far is he willing to go? The Romans also hated Barabbas. And yet, Pilate's willing to let this hated Roman criminal that the Romans hate let him go in order to spare Jesus' life. Isn't that interesting? The lengths he's willing to go so that Jesus wouldn't have to be crucified. He knew he was innocent. Okay, man, time's flying. The third player, the crowd at the cross, Mark 15, verses 25 to 32. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led led Jesus away into the palace, that's the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Then they put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, Come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. All right, the third player, the crowd at the cross. When bullied into ordering the crucifixion, Pilate had this notice, the king of the Jews. That's just an accidental kind of statement. He really didn't put much thought into that, right? The king of the Jews, right? Do you think that has any meaning? Why did Pilate choose that phrase? He absolutely knew it would drive them crazy. This was his way of getting even. This was his way of making them hurt for the place they forced him into, for getting him caught in a corner where he had had to uh, uh, um, allow the death of an innocent man. This is his way of rubbing salt in the wound the king of the Jews. What do the religious leaders think of that statement? They're like, don't write that. Don't write that. Write, he claimed to be, if you're going to have to write something, say he claimed, but he's not. But what did Pilate say? What I have written, I have written, so you just take it. Well, he didn't say that you just take it, part. But you know that's what he meant, Right? Right? So the, the, the religious leaders say, did the zealots like the sign? They hated it. For a weak king that's crucified by the Romans, that's the last thing they wanted. Did the average Jewish person like the sign? They hated it. Right? It was, who wants a, a king that can be crucified by the Romans, a powerless, helpless king suffering and dying on a cross? Who wants a king like that? See the the genius of Pilate? He just rubs it in everybody's face. Right? The king of the Jews. John says the Jewish leaders tried to get him to change this, but Pilate, probably wanting to salvage some sense of his authority by one-upping them, insisted it remain as written. So I think we talked about the effect that the notice had on the passerbys. Drove them crazy. All right. Let's look at the fourth player, God himself, Mark chapter 15, these few verses. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might think, why did I say God is a player in this drama? That uh, the words here that Jesus offers also say something about God the Father, don't they? Right? What had God the Father done at this moment? Forsaken Jesus. Turned his back on Jesus. Turned away from Jesus. We need to understand what this really means, right? The setting in which Jesus suffered was dramatic, From noon until three, the daylight was darkened. From out of the darkness came the voice of Jesus crying out these words from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words were predicted hundreds of years before that this would happen. Nine, what was the eternal Son of God experiencing in that eternal moment on the cross? Total separation from God which he had never experienced ever before, which, by the way, you have also never experienced. It's total separation from God. The sin bearer at that moment on the cross, Jesus is carrying the sins of the world. All the sins of every person, or let's just get even more real. He's carrying your and my sins. He is the sin bearer. For all people of all time. And at that moment, the sin-bearer, as he carries the sins, is abandoned by the judge of sins, the Father. Turns his back so that the punishment, justice, can be served. It's a moment, isn't it? It's a moment. That's the moment that Jesus suffered hell. All right? That moment... You might think, you know, when we say he descended into hell on the third day, right? You know, in our creed that he, when he descended into hell, that that's the moment he suffered in hell. Not true. The descent into hell is a victory descent. What do I always say? He went to hell to go, ha, 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 ha. You lost. I win. <laughs> right? But hell for Jesus was that moment on the cross when everyone turn their back on him, even God the Father. That's the Son of God suffering the agony of the crucifixion. All right, Marty, do you still have your question? Or did I pass it by? You answered, my question was about hell, did Jesus go to hell um, and then he go back, back up to be crucified? No, he suffered hell that moment on the cross. So when he descended into hell later, Victory had already been won. The sins had already been paid for. The price had been paid in full. So he doesn't go down into hell to suffer more because it's already been done. It's been accomplished. He's already said from the cross, it is finished. Right? So his descent into hell is not further suffering. It's to proclaim victory over death in the devil once and for all. Sure. Sure. So, um, uh, he experiences in that moment the, the hell that you and I deserve to suffer, but never will, because he did it for us. Can I just say that again, everybody, so that you can just let that sink in? Jesus suffered hell on the cross, a hell that you never will, because he's already done it for you. Hallelujah. Praise God. Lenski, my favorite commentator, the bottom of this thing, said, note the difference between Gethsemane and Golgotha. In the garden, Jesus had a God who heard and strengthened him. On the cross, this God turned away from him. Do you see the difference? Jesus was made sin for us and was made a curse for us on the cross. In the garden, Jesus wrestled with himself and brought himself to do the Father's will. On the cross, he wrestled with God and simply endured. Death was the penalty for the sins of the world. Thus, there had to be this forsaking of the dying Savior in connection with his death. When this had been endured, Jesus could cry, It is finished, and yield his spirit into his Father's hands as a ransom for many. And when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what did the Father do? Welcomed him back. The price has been paid. The punishment has been endured. And now he is back again. And that leads us to the last, fifth part here, the faithful women. Mark 15, verse 40 to 47. Some women were watching from a distance among them, where Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem were also there. Did you hear that part? Many other women. That never dawned on me until I was doing this study. I always thought it was just a couple of them. But there was a whole, like, women's aid there. The whole LWML showed up. Verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Again, what a statement that is. (laughs) All right, and he, he went boldly to Pilate. What a gutsy act that was, and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. Which centurion do you think he, he summoned? The one who stabbed that spear into his lung and heart. Summoning the centurion, uh, he learned um, that this was already sown, and he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jose, was there when he uh, where, saw where he was laid. So the women who cared for Jesus' needs in Galilee and watched in sadness at the cross had to stand aside while someone with more influence, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, surprisingly stepped forward to acknowledge Jesus and to arrange for entombment of his body what if the women had gone to Pilate and said can we have his body a they never would have even got to talk to him that would not have happened they would not have had an audience because why they were women but a member of the Sanhedrin, see, a member of the ruling council could get an audience with Pilate and have this request so that the body could be Uh, taken from the grave and laid in a stone tomb in which no one had ever been buried before. That's a prophecy fulfilled from the Old Testament. See how God's working here, right? John tells us that Nicodemus, who was also another member of the Sanhedrin, had carried his own private investigation of Jesus, joined Joseph in the hurried procedures. So remember we talked about the Sanhedrin, a bunch of creeps? There were some folks who were members of the Sanhedrin who were wrestling with the idea that Jesus was the Messiah and maybe believed. If you haven't seen The Chosen yet, you've got to watch The Chosen. Nicodemus. Oh, my gosh. I will never see John 3.16 the same again. And I can't wait to see what happens with Nicodemus as we roll on The Chosen. All right. pee out. All right, so uh, why, would, why was haste required in their placing Jesus' body into the tomb? Right, and when did Sabbath start? See, our things, they, we don't do it like they do. The day starts for us in the morning time, right? For them, the day starts at sundown. The Sabbath begins when the sun goes down. So they knew they had to get that body off the cross and buried before sundown, or they would be breaking the Sabbath law of doing work on the Sabbath. So they ask and they get moving to make that happen. All right, I thought this was cool. The communicator's commentary said, the faithful women who followed and ministered to Jesus from Galilee to Golgotha awaited the final evidence that the gospel really is good news. And it came for them and for us on Sunday morning. See, I just didn't want to leave you with the cross. I wanted to leave you with a little Easter, right? The Sunday morning was coming. And isn't it cool how the Bible, the Bible always shows the faithful women and their important role in the plan of God. You know this is unprecedented. I dare you to read the Quran and find one good thing that's ever said about a woman. You won't see it. You just won't. Right? This is unprecedented that women were held up in such high regard. All right, I'll go here, Arlo. Yeah, that's the blessing of being Lutheran, right? We believe what the Bible says. We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, and it is finished. Richard? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. He did descend into hell. Uh 1 Peter, um, maybe chapter 5. I'll look it up for you in a second when we're done here. All right. Um, Dennis had a couple words he wanted to share with us quick before you all hit the road, if that's all right. right
1: there. <laughs> Good morning, church. Hey. Um, we got a couple things that kind of got messed up a little bit with the planning session coming up this Friday. Uh, there's been a conflict with the schedules, with the funeral and stuff like that. So I just want to clarify, um, we are having it on Friday. The time has been changed from 1.30 to 3.30, though, uh, to be able to accommodate those that are going to be attending the funeral and stuff like that. So uh, it's going to be over in N4, which is kind of right across the road here. Uh, so uh, we'll we we'll use that room for the planning session. So the other thing it'll be starting at 1 it and finishing at 3:30. No, no. to You said it be at 3:30. Yeah. Did I?
0: Thank you. Yeah. It was to it
1: Yeah. real. to 3:30. It ain't going to change. No change. Okay. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, is there is a group that's going to Farm Discovery Day this, coming up this Friday. There's going to be a, about a dozen leaving. If you still want to uh, join the group, uh, Leon is going to kind of be leading the pack with Arlo here. And, pardon? Thursday. Boy, I am just like, I am, I'm so messed up. It's like we just got back from vacation and just like, okay. <laughs> so thursday yeah i won't take off anymore so uh but thursday so uh you can join them they're going to be meeting in the parking lot on Alice street at 10 o'clock and leaving from there so uh that's where the group is going to sort of drive out together out to the farm discovery days on thursday Uh, no, we're pretty much matched up for pairing up people that needed uh rides and stuff like that. So, um, Leon is going to be taking a couple of three others along with that. So, so, anyways, you're so always welcome to join. I have uh directions in the menus here for the people that are going to be going. Now, menu is like awesome. So, thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you, Ness. All right, thanks, everybody. Blessings on the rest of your day. She was all all jacked.